0: take our Bibles now, if you would please, and open them to 1 John chapter 1. We're just getting a start into the epistle of 1 John. And I don't know about you, but I think we've already learned that this is going to be a great book to study. It's a very personal letter written by the Apostle John near to the end of his life. Here we see the aged apostle writing to Christians that were very dear to him. And if you'll glance down there at verse number, or chapter number two, uh, you'll see that John calls the recipients of this letter his little children. Uh, Several times he uses the phrase, uh, that phrase, along with terms like brethren and beloved. And he has a great love for those who are like-minded in the faith. And then in this book we, we see his longing for those who have been bombarded with false doctrines and They have been taught some things that would endanger their faith. False doctrine is always dangerous. It's always uh, uh, harmful to Christians, and it can rob people of their joy. And John specifically says that he, one of the reasons that he writes this book, in order that the people there would have their joy full. Now we're looking then once again at the opening three verses of this book. It's a very powerful beginning. It's really, really worth uh, spending some time with. Uh, John launches into this letter with a statement about the reality of Christ. This is a personal testimony that he gives. He is an eyewitness of Christ, and that gave him confidence in what he believed, and it did assure him of his eternal life. And so he wants to relate these truths to the church so that they might also had the same assurance that he has. So if you look here in 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse number 1, he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father And was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard. Declare we unto you. That ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father. And with his Son. Jesus Christ. I want to just briefly describe what we discussed in last week's message before we move on to new material this evening. And the first point in our outline was the disease in the church. Uh, It's evident that there was heresy in the church. There was a cancer that was growing in this church body, and this cancer was attacking the foundation of their faith. Throughout church history, there have been many different heresies that have arisen. 2,000 years of church history means that just about every doctrine, just about every heresy that you can imagine has been tested and tried. And so we're not really seeing anything new uh, with things that come up today. It's, It's been faced before. John doesn't identify the problem that he's dealing with here, not in so many words, but we can determine what the heresy is by the way that he responds to it. We look at his arguments, and we find here that he's dealing with the infiltration into the Christian faith of a heresy that's called Gnosticism. Gnosticism uh, comes from the Greek word that means to know, and the Gnostics had thought or thought that they had reached a superior knowledge of the spiritual, that they were close to God. And this is why John uses the word know 32 times throughout this book. It's a direct refutation of what these people thought they knew. Now, they thought they knew something, but John comes to them and he shows them here what is really the truth, what he knew, and we find out just how important his own personal knowledge of Christ was in these opening verses Uh, we discussed three forms of Gnosticism last week I'm not going to go into those tonight But let me just say, basically, in some form or another, Gnosticism denied the incarnation of Christ. And they taught that the human body, the material body, is sinful. The material body is limiting, it is defiling. And so the body has to be overcome because the body is what actually shackles the spirit, which is the true man. And so then, uh, in their doctrine, uh, teaching that the body is evil, then naturally, they would not believe that God could come to earth in a body, And so they denied the incarnation of Christ. So John refutes this, though, in his personal experience. He says, I was there. He had met Christ. He saw what Christ did. He saw how he lived. He saw how he died. He saw also how he arose from the grave. And he assures them that Christ was real. And in fact, it is a doctrine of the faith that Christ died to redeem the whole man. And that includes his body. Now, next week we're going to discuss a little bit more the importance of the incarnation to our beliefs, but that is a doctrine that is essential to our faith. So that's how we began. We looked at the underlying problem in the church, which was a disease that threatened the life of the church, and the error had to be stopped. Truth had to be told, otherwise Christianity would lose its life force. And if John does not refute this error very strongly, and all the things that come out of it, then Christianity could very well have not survived the first century. Now, we go on then, and uh, tonight we start something, another piece of this is new to us. And I want to talk to you next about the defense of the faith. John is about to set the record straight with personal knowledge of the facts. Now, John uses the word know. He also uses the word confidence. John was confident of what he knew. And isn't that something you want to see in a preacher? I mean, when somebody's preaching the word of God, uh, you don't want somebody who's not quite sure of what they believe And uh, you want somebody that when they interpret the scripture, they do have confidence in what they're telling you so that you can have confidence in them. Our pulpits today, unfortunately, are filled with too many preachers that are just simply chasing the latest fads, and they change doctrines like they change socks. And so too many preachers are afraid that they're going to state something too strongly because tomorrow their doctrine might not be popular. Even today it might not be popular. And so they leave themselves and out. So they're not going to stand too strongly on anything. Uh, they're, they want to be popular, and so they become wishy-washy. They're not very forceful. But John was not that kind of a preacher. Now, he was a loving pastor. That's evident when you read his writings. But we also know that John was not afraid to bring out a whip when he needed to, just like Jesus did. So John then is set for the defense, and the rest of the book is actually a defense against this Gnostic heresy. And he begins very forcefully here in the opening verses. Now, as I said, last week, or next week, rather, we're going to get into doctrinal consideration under a different heading. Tonight, I want to talk to you about the defense that John makes from his own senses. What does he know about Christ? What is his personal experience of Christ? So first, we would notice from his senses in this passage, the hearing. John speaks of his hearing, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard. And then verse number three, that which we have seen and heard. And the we there refers to the apostles and John happened to be one of the first apostles that walked with Jesus. According to John chapter 1 verse number 37, John and Andrew were disciples of John the Baptist. And when John the Baptist pointed out that Jesus was the Christ, when he said he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world... Then John and Andrew both left John the Baptist and then they became disciples of Jesus. And so actually before John ever became an apostle, he was already following Jesus and listening to his teachings. So uh, John and Andrew both, John was there from the very beginning of Christ's public ministry. He was a disciple. And the word disciple means an inherent, it means a learner. And for all of those years that John sat under the ministry of Christ, he was listening to every word that Jesus said. Now, can you imagine the words that Jesus said? Uh, The Bible tells us that no one ever spoke like Jesus. And so John listened as Jesus explained the Old Testament Scripture. He heard him refute the best arguments that were made by the scribes and the Pharisees. And as he listened to Jesus, he heard a man that had no formal training in any religious school out-argue, outwit, confound the doctors of the law who had all been trained in the best of the rabbinical schools. But John was truly convinced of the reality and the humanity of Christ because he heard what Christ said. His ears were actually a testimony that Christ was real. And the wisdom that John had was wisdom that had been imparted to him by listening to what Christ said. And not only that, but under the ministry of the Holy Spirit revealing to him many, many years later exactly uh, every conversation it seems that he had with Jesus. So all of that was recalled to him. And you may uh, remember, we talked about this some time ago, about the remarkable ministry that the Holy Spirit had to the apostles, because when John wrote the gospel account telling about Jesus' life, uh, it was 50 years or more after Christ had died. And you wonder, well, how could an old man recall everything that Jesus said? Well, John explained how that happened. He recites the word of Jesus in John chapter 14, verse 26, where Jesus said, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. And so the Holy Spirit brought those words of Jesus back to him, and then John was able to record them. So John is ready for the defense. He heard what Christ said. The Gnostics weren't there. They had nothing to stand on. They'd never heard the words of Christ. They weren't qualified to comment on what Jesus said. And in fact, all the information of the truths that we know about Jesus came or we get them from the inspired writers of Scripture. We don't have any other reputable writings that describe anything that Jesus said. We don't have any record from any other source what Jesus actually said. So John heard him. Now, the second thing or the second sense that John appeals to for what he knows about Christ is the seeing. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon. Then verse number 2, For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you. Then verse number 3, That which we have seen and heard, we declare unto you. Now, John puts a lot of emphasis here on seeing and really, isn't that what most of us say? I mean, we, we say, well, if I see it, I will believe it. Remember, Thomas said that about Christ's resurrection. He said it without faith. But that's what most of us think when someone tells us an incredible event. We say, well, if I see it, then I will believe it. And when you see it, that's when you become really convinced. And that's actually the value of a credible witness. If you know the character of someone who speaks and this person says, I saw it then you're more likely to believe it. And I think that really makes Thomas probably too much the skeptic because he knew the character of the men that he was serving with. He knew the other apostles, and they said, we saw him. And yet Thomas said, well, I have to see him for myself. I don't actually believe that. Well, there is great value in credible witnesses. And in fact, there's enough value that according to God's law and our law, that when there is a credible eyewitness to an event and he says, I saw it, a jury is required to believe that just like they saw it themselves if it's a credible witness. So what did John see? Well his main point overall in dealing with the Gnostics is that Jesus was a man. He saw Jesus the man. He wasn't a ghost like some of them thought, and he wasn't a mist. He wasn't an apparition. He wasn't you know something illusion that had been conjured up. He actually saw the man Jesus. And it's interesting that this was one of the things that John was setting out to prove when he was talking about the incarnation of Christ. He wrote in the gospel account in John 1.14, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Then he said in the 18th verse of that chapter, No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. And so the question is, would God take on flesh? Is it impossible that God would become a man because the material body is evil? Well, no, there's plenty of proof of this. John said, here's my purpose in writing. The gospel account is given to you so that you might know exactly who Jesus is. And so in the Gospels he related several of Christ's miracles uh, showing that he was God. And we'll notice something as we go here about his humanity. So he started out uh, in John chapter 2 talking about water that was turned into wine. That was at the marriage feast of Cana. Then in chapter 4, we have the healing of the noble man's son. And if you remember, uh, Jesus healed this man's son who was in Capernaum while Jesus was in Cana. And so Jesus was able to heal heal that man's son without even having seen him. And so Jesus simply said to the man, go thy way, thy son liveth. And then that man left and he was on his way home and as he was on his way there, his servants came out to meet him before he ever got there and they told him that his son had been healed. And when he inquired of him when that happened, it turns out that it was exactly at the same time that Jesus said that he would be healed. Then in chapter 5, there's the healing of the man who was at the pool of Bethesda and that man had been in the condition for 38 years and no one was able to help him and yet Jesus healed him right there on the spot. In John chapter 6, he speaks of the 5,000 that were fed by Jesus with five loaves and two fish. In the same chapter, he said Jesus walked on water. And then you come to John chapter 9, that great chapter where he deals with the man who was blind from his birth and Jesus healed him so that he could see. And by the way, if you want to hear an outstanding sermon on that text of John chapter nine, I would encourage you to download Al Mohler's sermon from the Shepherd's Conference this, uh, this, past, or this year. Um, that's the the same sermon that I told you earlier that Hans Kirsch. When he heard it, uh, he stayed up all night in the motel just thinking about that sermon. I mean, it was really a good one from John chapter 9. And so on and on, you go throughout the Gospels, and there John is recording the miracles of Jesus until he comes down to to, uh, the 30 and 31st verses of chapter 20. And you've heard me read this many, many times. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. All of these miracles were things that John personally saw. He's an eyewitness to it. Now remember, there were others who saw the miracles of Jesus. And you know what they said? They said, nobody could do these things unless he's God. How could anybody do these miracles unless they're God? And you notice when they said that? They said that when they saw Jesus was a man. And that's the thing that astounded them so much. The very fact that he was a man being able to do these miracles. And they equated that with God. Only God could do that. But I want us to look at the singular event in John's mind that really stood out above all the others. I mean, there's one event that put an indelible stamp in John's mind and sealed it up and helped him to understand in a profound way that the one that he listened to and saw with his own eyes was not only a man, but he was also God. Now, this is in the 20th chapter of John. If you turn there with me, we want to read this, uh, John chapter 20. And I think you know what this is going to be. But let's turn and read it. John chapter 20, starting in verse number 1. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark under the sepulcher, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. Then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, that would be John, and saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we know not where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth, that, and that other disciple, uh, and came to the sepulcher. So they ran both together, and the other disciple did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulcher. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him, and went into the sepulcher, and seeth the linen clothes lie. And the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also that other disciple which came first to the sepulcher, again that's John, and he saw and believed. For as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. It's a marvelous scripture, really an extremely important one. What John saw and the way that he saw it is very, very important. In verse number 3, we read that both Peter and John took off running towards the tomb when they learned that the tomb was open and it was empty. And John must have been the sprinter because he outran Peter and he got there first. And then it says they stooped down and they looked in. When we took our trip to Israel a couple of years ago, we, of course, did the touristy thing, what everybody does. And we went to the garden tomb where they said that Jesus was put uh, after he died. They don't really know for sure if this was the place where Jesus was, but that's the traditional site. And when you walk up to the tomb... um, you'd probably notice that you don't really have to stoop down too much to get in this particular tomb. But we were uh, traveling along the highway. Actually, we were up around Mount Carmel where Elijah uh, met the prophets of Baal and uh, just leaving there. I think we were on our way to Megiddo at that time. And we stopped at a place along the highway where there was a tomb that was uncovered when they were building the highway. And an interesting thing about this tomb was the, the round stone that they rolled in front of the door was still there. Now, we have a picture of that, of course, if you put that up there for me. And when you went up to this tomb, you had to stoop way down to get inside of it. Now, even somebody short like me, I had to stoop to get inside of this tomb. Well, this is what we find John doing in verse number 5. And here it says he was looking in. And that's really one of three Greek words that's in this text to describe the way that they saw. And the first instance here in verse number 5, looking in, means that he just gazed at it. Or simply he just saw what was there. Then the second word is in verse number 6. And this is where Peter went into the tomb. And it says there that he seeth the linen clothes lie. Now that's a different word. And this word means that Peter closely scrutinized what he saw in the tomb. He looked it over and he saw and was trying to figure out. uh, He looked at the grave clothes that were laying there very neatly. They hadn't been torn off. And then he saw the place where the napkin covered the face of Jesus just as if it hadn't been disturbed but just as if the body was still there. And so Peter was looking into the tomb like a detective would look over the scene, very carefully scrutinizing it, trying to figure out what had happened. But the definitive, most important word is what we find in verse number 8. Here it says, Then went in also that other disciple which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. And the word saw there means to see with understanding. And it means that at that very moment, this hit John. The body is gone because he arose from the grave. He arose from the dead. And there was no other explanation for this. Now, at that point, everything that Jesus said and told him about his death and being raised from the dead and all the scriptures that were written in the Old Testament about a suffering, dying Messiah, all of that must have come flooding back to John. And now he understands what Jesus meant and what he said, what he was talking about when he said that he must die and then arise from the grave. And then he understood what the Old Testament passages were about. Previously, the disciples had missed that. They didn't know about it. Verse number 9 says, For as yet they knew not the Scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. But now it's different. Now John sees in a different way. He does know. Now you might write that down in your notes. John knows at this point. And the operative word, if you remember in 1 John, is that word know. The Gnostics thought that they knew something. But John says, you don't know anything. Here's what I know because this is what I saw. Now that helps us to understand why that John writes with such confidence. And we can understand why he launches into this text like a charging bull into a china shop. These guys are there and they're feeding the church a line. They're telling them all this false doctrine and they thought that they were smart and they thought that they had reached this spiritual plane that no other Christian could come to or the average one doesn't reach. And John says, hold on just a minute. He charges in and says, hold on here. You have no idea what you're talking about. Here's what I know. I heard him with my ears, and I saw him with my eyes. Now, the resurrection of Christ was not a spiritual resurrection. This was a bodily resurrection. Jesus was in the flesh. He was crucified in the flesh. It was a real body that was wrapped for burial and then put into the tomb. And it was that same physical body that came out of the tomb. But the same old heresy is still around today. Some say still say it was a spiritual resurrection and that idea is still being floated by the Jehovah witnesses. They deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus and their explanation for what happened to the body is that God the Father whisked the body away. Well, you've got a problem because you've got to do something with the apostle John because he said, I saw it. I know that his body came out of the tomb. There was not one of the apostles who believed that Jesus arose in the spirit and not in the body. Now, what I'll do, I'll take the eyewitness testimony every day of the week. Uh, I'll take that over the foolishness and the blasphemy of those who say there is no resurrection. And then we see further in our text back in First John that John included himself among a number of people who saw him. He says, which we have heard, which we have seen, which we have looked upon... And he means that all the apostles saw him. Even Thomas got a chance to see how foolish that he was for missing church on Sunday night. Jesus was about to or going to appear on the next Sunday evening. And and Thomas was going to make sure that he was there for that. And so he was. And when Jesus appeared, of course, he was able to see him. So all of the apostles then had seen Jesus. Well, that brings to our memory what we read in First Corinthians chapter 15 in Paul's account. He says, For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me as one born out of due time. That's convincing evidence, isn't it? Well, what do you do when they call in or could call in 500 witnesses who said that they had seen Jesus in a material body? Do you need more proof than that? Well, there is more proof. I mean, if that's not enough for you, then we need to let Jesus speak for himself. Luke tells us about this. So let's go over to Luke chapter 24 and let's read this. And this is the place where I would very strongly encourage you to remember this. Mark it in your Bible for the next time that a Jehovah Witness comes to your house. And you read this to him just before you turn the water hose on him. Look at uh, Luke 24, verse number 36. And as they thus spake, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and saith unto them, Peace, be unto you but they were terrified and affrighted and supposed that they had seen a spirit now stop right there and you might want to mark that they supposed that they had seen a spirit and that's exactly what the Gnostics would say that's what the Jehovah witness would say well he was a spirit but Jesus wanted to make sure that they knew he wasn't a spirit he was in a material body look at verse 38 and he said to them why are you troubled And why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones, as ye see me have. And when he had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and his feet. Now there's some pretty good proof. He says, handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones, as ye see me have. Well now he's not through proving to them that he has a material body. He really is flesh and bone. So he's going to show them something else. Verse 41. And while they yet believed not for joy and wondered, now, now still, they're just a little bit thick. He said unto them, "Have ye here any meat?" And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and of a honeycomb, and he took it and did eat before them. Don't you love the way the Bible speaks? I mean, you get down in the word of God and you you read this to heretics and you're going to shut their mouths. Uh, you, you may not have to turn the sprinklers on them because they're going to go away, look like a drowned rat anyway. But Jesus was in that real body. He came out of a tomb. He was incarnated. He was God in the flesh. So what do you suppose would happen in this demonstration if Jesus had been a spirit and not a material body? What would happen if he ate the fish and the honeycomb? Well, I would suppose that, that pass right through him and land on the floor. He's a spirit. He doesn't have a body. And do you know that we can use eating as proof that we are going to have a material body when we get into heaven? Our bodies are going to be raised. They'll be glorified. And Scripture says that we'll be given a body that's just like the Lord Jesus Christ. It will be a material body. In 1 John 3, verse number 2, Beloved, now we are the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is." So John is fighting the Gnostics over these issues about the incarnation, about whether the material body is sinful and is the body useless. And, and here's a verse where he says that we're going to be just like Christ. Our bodies will be like the glorified, resurrected body of Christ and the body that Jesus had could eat. It says he ate a fish and a honeycomb. Now listen to what Revelation says about heaven. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And then in the 22nd chapter, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, Which bear twelve manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now, the scripture says that when you get to heaven, you'll be able to eat of the tree of life. You're not going to be a spirit that's floating around. Your body will be raised incorruptible, it'll be glorified, made like the body of Jesus. Then your soul and your spirit will rejoin the body, and when you get to heaven, you can eat all of the fruit that you want. Now, I would say that you could also eat the fish, whatever, but then we'd be back to arguing about whether cats and dogs and other animals go to heaven. So this really then is the background that John has to draw on. He, he's writing to these people. He's got all the proof that he needs, everything he, wa- he stands behind here, and the Gnostics are not standing at all. The, they, they have no proof. Everything that they say falls through thin air, just like their foolish ideas about the spirit man. And so, John appeals to the senses. He speaks about what he heard and what he has seen. But then there's one more sense that he appeals to. And thirdly, is the touching. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, and which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. He said, our hands have handled it. We have handled him. We've touched him. I know that he's real because I touched him. Well, since we're talking about the resurrected body of Christ or have been, let's go back to Luke 24. And there Jesus not only says, Behold my hands and feet or see my hands and feet, but he also says, Handle me, touch me. After the resurrection, uh, Thomas missed that first Sunday night appearance. And so John records what Thomas demanded as proof that Jesus had actually risen from the grave. In John 20, verse 24, "...but Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands." print of the nails and put my finger in the print of the nails and thrust my hand into his side i will not believe now this is a very interesting statement because it appears that thomas did not even entertain that if jesus had risen from the dead that it would have been the spirit that arose if Jesus arose, then he expected that he would be in a body. And that's why he asked to handle him. That's why he says, let me touch him. Let me put my fingers in the nail prints and let me thrust my hand into his side. Thomas knew you can't touch a spirit. So he expected if Christ arose that he would be in his body. Now that ought to be a proof enough for the Gnostics that Jesus arose in a material body, that he did have a physical body. He was God in the flesh because that is exactly What Thomas expected to see if he was alive. It would be a material body. And so Jesus gave him exactly what he asked for. And after eight days, again, his disciples were within and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger and behold my hands and reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side and be not faithless but believing." And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. So now there's no doubt in Thomas' mind. Jesus had a material body when he died. He arose in a material body after he died. And he was the Lord God. And so the scriptures stomp all over liberal theologians. Well, John can attest to another way concerning the touch. There are lots of examples that I could give you. Such as uh, John being in the boat with the other disciples and Jesus being with them. And uh, if you ever had an opportunity, you know, they, uh, some years ago they were able to dig up a a boat that was from the era, actually from the era of the apostles, and they have it in a museum there in in uh, uh, near near Galilee, there at the Sea of Galilee. And they dug this up, and the boats are not very big, and so you put these disciples into a boat with jesus and they are very very close to one another And this is not a yacht that they're sailing on they're in a little fishing vessel and so no doubt that the disciples were tossed around and thrown up against jesus so they touched him many many times but there's another example that we have and we'll we'll stop with this and this was at the last supper John is the one who's writing the epistle. He personally touched Jesus, saw him. So he writes it down this way. And this is when Jesus revealed to the disciples who would betray him. John 13. When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. Then the disciples looked one on another, doubting of whom he spake. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. That's John. Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him that he would ask who it should be of whom he spake. And he lying on Jesus' breast saith unto him, Lord, who is it? So how close was John? He was leaning on Jesus. Right up next to him as they ate. So he's there leaning on Jesus. He's leaning on his breast and he asked the question, Lord, who is it? Do you think there was any doubt in John's mind that Jesus was flesh and blood that he was a man? I mean, did God really take on human flesh? If you doubt it, ask John. He says, "I heard him, I I saw him, I touched him. I was so close to him. There's no doubt that he was a man." And then in the end of the gospel he says, "I wrote all of this down so that you would believe it too." He wasn't just a man but he was also God. Now, who are we then to argue with one who was there? John says, what do they know? What do do these false teachers know about this? Let me tell you what I know. Well, there's a lot more. To these first three verses. In the next lesson, uh, as I said, we're going to go into this and look at some points of doctrine concerning Christ. It's not just what the senses told John, but there's also a very essential doctrine involved here. We must know that Jesus came in the flesh and why that Jesus came in the flesh. So let me close with one other, one other statement. John says, I heard him and I saw him. He says, I touched him. And let me ask you a very important question. And it, it's not, have you touched Jesus? The most important question is, has Jesus touched you? See, that it's most important. You, you can take everything that I've said tonight, and it's facts and figures, it's head knowledge, it's an historical account that we can read in the Scripture, and it means nothing at all if Jesus has not touched you. And when Jesus touches you, you'll see him exactly in the way that John saw him. When he looked into his eyes, uh, looked in, or looked in, in that grave, I should say, and, and the grave clothes weren't there, he could actually see Jesus in a way that now he has understanding. Now he knows exactly who Jesus is. And I promise you, when Jesus touches you, you'll be able to look into his eyes and you'll know exactly who he is. And then you'll have understanding and then you'll know also he is your Lord and your God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word and what precious truths that we find here. And we are so thankful that Jesus Christ came to this earth as a man. How essential that it was to our salvation. We can't be saved unless Jesus was a man who died on a cross and paid for our sins. And Lord, we thank you that he did arise in that body from the grave with the promise and hope for us that we also shall arise bless us tonight lord as we sing we thank you for the opportunity to be together in jesus name we pray amen let's play.